So I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. <clears throat> now we're going to read a couple, from a couple of places. Um, Exodus 20, uh, 1 to 21, and then we're going to jump to chapter 23 and read from verse 20 into chapter 24. Um, before we read, let's, let's pray together. Father, as we come to your words, we thank you for it once again. And we pray for understanding, for help. Our hearts are often distracted and we're thinking about many other things. But may we give attention, be enabled to give attention to your words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the people of Israel are on Mount Sinai and, uh, and God speaks in verse, uh, chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make for yourself a carved image or any likeness, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or your so- the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land, and that that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off, and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. There then follows a a number of laws about various things, and we pick up. Um, in chapter 23 verse uh, 20 and uh, the Lord says behold I send an angel uh, 23 verse 20 behold I send an angel before you to guard the way to bring you to the place that I have prepared pay careful attention to him 
and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will, bless you, uh, he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all people against whom I, you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you that shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your uh, uh, the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. And said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance uh, with these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the seventy elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. Like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Amen. So we are uh, looking at the the covenant of grace. We're looking at covenant theology generally. We're into a sub-series, if you like, of looking at the covenant of grace. And... uh, 
that covenant of grace uh, appears throughout the Bible. After the fall of Adam, the covenant of grace comes in different forms, uh, right up to, to Jesus. And that covenant of grace is all about how human beings can continue to have fellowship with God, even though they have sinned. That God, even before he, Adam had sinned, the only way that Adam could have fellowship with God is if God came down to him, uh, condescended, as the confession says, came down to him. And so he had fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. But even after the fall, God continues to come down. He comes down always, 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 taking the initiative, coming into people's lives, forming relationships, forming that covenant bond with people. Now this phrase, uh, covenant of grace, you won't actually find it in the Bible I guess it's a kind of theological term. Uh, but there are many places, of course, where you find the word covenant. And we have looked at the covenants with Adam. Uh, we've looked at uh, the covenants with Adam. After the fall, we've looked at the covenant with Adam. We've looked at the covenant with Noah very briefly. Uh, we've looked at the covenant with Abraham. And what we've tried to show so far is that these, these covenants are actually kind of organically connected to each other. That they're not just they're not new things, but they're actually connected to each other. They, one flows out of the other. And the next covenant grows, as it were, the, the, the promises and the, uh, the scope of the promises that come, came previously. So they're organically connected. You get the seed of the, the covenant in Genesis 3.15 where God promises to this, uh, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, the, ser- uh, the seed of the serpent, the head of the seed of the serpent. And so it grows from this seed, and we've seen some of that already. That's, and like a seed that grows, you know, you have the seed first of all, and then you have the, the stalk that begins to grow out, uh, and the green shoots start appearing, and then the leaves start to appear. And then in the fullness of time, uh, a flower appears. And then the fruit comes, if you like. And that's kind of like what God is doing in his covenant promises. You get the seed in Genesis 3.15, and as time goes on, the plant grows and grows. And it f- comes to full flower and fruiting in Jesus Christ. And what we see across all of those covenants is not different covenants. As it were, the, uh, the seed is the same as the plant in the sense that you know, the DNA is the same. Isn't that true in plants? <laughs> it's the same DNA. Well, it's, there's an, it's an analogy, if you like, to the covenant of grace. It's the same DNA, the substance of the covenant, all the way through from Adam in the garden post-fall. To Jesus Christ, the substance is the same in the new covenant. And that, that, that substance is Jesus. It is him himself. When we come, we come now to the covenant with Moses, it's sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant. Um, and, and later on in the Bible, in the New Testament, and in the book of Hebrews, it's called the Old Covenant. 
And there's a lot in the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, the whole of the Old Testament is, is dominated by uh, Moses' covenant. Uh, so what I'm going to do this morning is, is give you a kind of 30,000 foot view of the Mosaic Covenant. We're just going to kind of cover some general areas. Uh, that may raise some, from some questions for you, which you're free to ask me afterwards or talk about afterwards. But uh, let's just try and get this big picture. Um, uh, I think the Bible likes to give us big pictures. And the big picture of the, the Mosaic Covenant. So let me just talk about the background to this passage that we read together. So last week we looked at the promises of, Mo, of Abraham. And as the story goes on, you'll read in Genesis how those promises to Abraham are renewed to Isaac and to Jacob and to his 12 son, uh, Jacob's 12 sons. And so the promises are continuing and being passed down from generation to generation. And you may remember that one of those sons of Jacob, Joseph, um, was sold into slavery by his brothers. Um, Joseph was a bit of an annoying so-and-so when he was younger. You know, he boasted quite a lot. He was the youngest and he was a mouthy sort of guy. And uh, he boasted. So, and his brothers just had enough of this and they sold him into slavery. Um, quite shocking really, but there you go. But in the providence of God, you know, Joseph ends up in Egypt and from the lowest point, he reaches uh, the, almost the highest point in Egyptian society. He's only second, second only to Pharaoh in terms of his power and authority that he gains. Meanwhile, back in Canaan, a famine comes. And the, 12 brother, the, the remaining 11 brothers and, J- and Jacob uh, send, uh, they send the sons to go to Not all the sons, but they send the sons to Egypt to buy food because of the famine. And what happens is they come face to face with their brother. It takes a while for them to work out that it's their brother Joseph. But when they do, uh, you remember, they're they're in fear because they remember what they did to Joseph. And here he is now, a powerful man. And he could destroy them. Carry out revenge. But amazingly, Joseph says, the man of God says, you meant it, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Oh, the amazing ways of the providence of God in preserving his people. It looks like a disaster from our point of view. So many things look like disasters from our point of view, but God has everything under control. He knows exactly what he's doing. And Joseph understood, you see, that God was preserving his people. So it turns out that Joseph and his brothers and Jacob end up settling in Egypt, and they're there for 400 years. But not all goes well. It it turns out that the Israelites end up being under the thumb of the Egyptians. And they end up being slaves. And life gets hard. And they begin to cry out. Cry out under the suffering. And so at the start of the book of Exodus, Moses is chosen by God to lead his people out of Egypt. First of all, to go to Mount Sinai to worship. And then ultimately to the promised land. 
And the passage that we read earlier takes place at Mount Sinai. They've, they've got there. They've arrived. And what you see in that passage is, first of all, we didn't read chapter 19, but you see preparation. The people have to, have to wash their clothes. Some of you have scrubbed up this morning. Good. <laughs> I'm not sure that's necessarily a rule for church life. But, you know, it's, it's an expression of the heart, isn't it? You scrub up a bit. You clean your, your, your clothes ready for what God is about to do. And they prepare themselves. And then as God's redeemed people, so they have been saved already. They are given the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. And then they're given sundry other laws to to manage their affairs as a nation of people. This is all about how God's people should live as redeemed people in relationship with one another and before God. And then finally in chapter 24, which we read, there is that ceremony of consecration of the people of God where where oxen are offered and the bodies are burnt and half the blood is sprinkled on the altar. And then the book of the law is read to the people and the people commit to obedience to the law and then the other half of the blood is scattered over the people. Just imagine that. Scattered over the people. The blood of the covenant. And there is a commitment, a covenant commitment unto death. God will be faithful to his people. And then, is the most amazing finish to this. Moses and the 70 elders go up the mountain. They see God and they eat and drink with him. <laughs> if you want an idea of what the Lord's Supper is all about, that's one place to go. We get to meet with God and eat and drink with him. An amazing event. This is the making of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, and it's much richer much fuller than anything that has gone before. Now at this point it's probably worth mentioning that there, are, there, have been very, there have been very different views of this covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, different views of its place in the Bible and of its significance for us today. Let me just run through some of those. The first and perhaps nowadays the most common view Uh, though it's actually historically a a relatively recent view, is the so-called dispensationalist view of the Mosaic Covenant. And this is the view that the Mosaic Covenant stands on its own uh, for Israel. That it only had relevance to Israel. And so that for the New Testament church, the laws of the Old Testament are no longer of any significance to us today. All the laws were done away with at the coming of Christ. All the Ten Commandments, all the others. And instead, we are now under the law of Christ, say the dispensationalists. And you get that, you get the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? You get that by looking only at the New Testament. And of course, the problem with that is, 
a great deal is missed. You end up thinking that God works with two peoples, Israel and the church. You miss the place of children in the covenant. And you have a distorted attitude to the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. And one of the one glaring casualty of dispensationalist thinking is the, the loss of the idea of the Sabbath day. So that's one view, the dispensationalist view. That's a very um, brief outline. A second view is a minority view within the Reformed and Presbyterian world. Um, There are some who say that the Mosaic Covenant is a republication of the Covenant of Works. So we looked at the Covenant of Works a few weeks ago. But the, the Law of Moses is a republication of the Covenant of Works. In other words, like the covenant of works where Adam is promised life uh, upon perfect perpetual obedience, so the law of Moses is given and it offers life on condition of perpetual perfect obedience. And if the Israelites can keep it, then they can be saved. But of course, being Reformed and Presbyterian, they know that that's impossible. So what's the function of that, that republication, as they put it, of the covenant of works? The function of it is to realize that you can't keep the law. And so you're driven back to the promises of Abraham. So the law itself can't be kept, is what they say. But it drives you to the promises, the gospel promises found in Abraham. And that's a a view that you'll find in writers, some of you will know who these people are. But writers like Michael Horton, John Fesco, uh, the White Horson podcast, uh, you'll find that that's that's their view. A lot to learn from those guys, um, but this is an area where I think we differ with them. The last view, and this is our view, uh, which I think is the majority reform view, is, um, is, is, is as follows. That the Mosaic Covenant is a fundamentally gracious covenant. And in doing so, in giving it, it is a continuation of that one covenant of grace. And you can see the continuity with Abraham. Uh, If you look back to chapter 2, you see how God responds to the cries of the suffering people in in Egypt. And chapter 2, verse 24 says, And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. So God is about to perform the exodus because he remembers his covenant with Abraham. So you see that organic connection between the covenants. And then when the people are released and get to Sinai to worship as God has led them, he gives them the law. But he he does not give them the law so that they can obey it perfectly and then be saved because already they are saved. You see that? Uh, Look at chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord. Wrong page. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the preamble, if you like, to the Ten Commandments. God has graciously saved his people, and now he's going to tell them how they should live as saved people. Freedom and salvation come first, then you begin to live in a new way. And I think we'll see. That's a gospel order of things. So the, the, the Mosaic covenant is fundamentally gracious. Let me just dig a bit deeper into the similarities of the blessings. Uh, let me just list the covenant blessings. And, and for that, just re- let's remember the, the blessings that have come before. Remember, with Adam in the Garden of Eden, he was given a place, wasn't he? He was given the Garden of Eden uh, to, to be in. Then he was given a wife with whom to be fruitful, uh, that he would have children, and the children would have children, and so the generations would be fruitful and multiply. And so uh, there's a promise there of, of fruitfulness for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And thirdly, the presence of God in the Garden, that close religious fellowship that Adam is able to have with God, because God has come down to the Garden. So a place, fruitfulness, fellowship with God. In the garden. But that's all lost because of sin. But remember, we looked at Abraham last week and we saw a similarity. What is Abraham promised? He's promised a place, the promised land. He has promised a nation that would come from him and kings would come from him. He has promised the blessing of God. The presence of God. Do you see the similarity between what Adam lost and what Abram is now getting? It's not the full thing yet. But graciously God comes and gives it. What about Moses? Well, you see the same pattern of blessing. You see a place being promised. Look at uh, chapter 23. In verse, uh, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place that I have prepared. And then in verse 31. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. So there's a place promised to the Israelites. Then there's a multiplication of people. 23 verse 26. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. The the women will bear children. There will be no problems with them bearing children and being fruitful. Or verse 30. Little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. The increase of the people. Important. Then lastly, the presence of God, of course. I think that's actually shown by the rest of the book of Exodus, from 25, chapter 25 through to 40, you hear the description of the tabernacle and all the furniture. And then later, the making of the tabernacle and all the furniture. Why give so much, de- so much attention to all of those details? A design, you know, a plan and then an execution of it. Why so much detail? 
Surely the first 20 chapters are much more interesting and exciting as a story. And then you get this rather dull list. Well, there's a reason for that. Because God is in a tangible way going to be amongst his people. He is bringing his presence to be amongst the people. And so when the people are all encamped and they encamp in an order around the center, in the center is the tabernacle where the very presence of God is. And so all the time God is saying, I want to be amongst my people. I'm here. I want to bless you. So a place, multiplication, and the presence of God. Same again. Gracious covenant. Gracious blessings. You see the continuity that there is within these covenantal arrangements. Now some of us might be thinking, well, aren't there curses in the, the Mosaic covenant? And it's true. There are curses spelled out for the people of Israel. You look at Deuteronomy 28 or Leviticus 26, don't do it now, uh, but you'll find great lists of curses that are going to come on the people if they are unfaithful to him. And curses are an aspect of God's covenant of grace. We've seen that with Abraham. Remember that uh, if he didn't, if anyone in his household was not circumcised and males weren't, weren't circumcised, they would be covenant breakers and cut off from God's covenant. So there are curses, even with the covenant of grace. So what form does the, do the curses take? Well, you can read this later, but in Deuteronomy 26, 62 to 64, you see the opposite of the promised blessings. So instead of multiplying people, the people will diminish as God brings them to ruin. Instead of giving a land, the people will be scattered out of it to a foreign land. And thirdly, instead of the blessing of God, they will be given over to idolatry. God will withdraw his presence and they will give themselves to worshipping other gods. That's what you see in Romans chapter 1, isn't it? People give themselves to sin. God gives them over to sins in the pursuit of their idols. And as you follow the the history of Israel, you see this all play out as they begin to be increasingly unfaithful to God and to his law. They lose the blessing of God until ultimately they're cast out and exiled. The story of Israel in the Old Testament is a story of tragic unfaithfulness and covenant breaking that leads to disaster for them. They didn't make use of what God had given them in his covenant through Moses. And in one sense they became blind and deaf to the gracious messages contained in the law that was given. And even though they still went through many of the motions of religion. And this can happen in a church. You can have the habits of church attendance. You can pass it down from generation to generation. And yet the people can still be blind to the grace of God. This is a story of 
the Jews that you find in Jesus' time. They have the religion, but they miss the central issue, the gracious blessing of God in Christ. What are the lessons from the covenant of Moses? Firstly, it's important to understand that obedience, that obedience to the law can never come from a place of self-effort. The answer to the world's problems is never simply to take the commands of God and try and make people do them. For the simple reason that sin has ruined you and me and everyone else. So the answer is not to take the Ten Commandments and say, if only society would keep the Ten Commandments, then everything would be great. No, it wouldn't. What people are called to, first of all, and this is the story of Exodus, is trust God first and follow him. Believe God. Believe his promises. And it's only then you can get up and begin to follow and to obey. You see, faith always comes first, even in the Old Testament. Even under Moses. You need to trust God to be able to to be saved. But when faith comes, obedience follows. That's the story of the Old Testament. It's the story of the New Testament. It's something that Christians, I think, get very mixed up about. We've, We've rightly come to believe that you cannot get salvation by good works and effort in order to qualify. But the conclusion that's often drawn from that is a false one. That therefore God does not care if we are obedient. He does care about our obedience. Even in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, 14. Worth thinking about this. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness follows the life of faith. You see, it's kind of like salvation by works is is kind of like trying to nail some fruit to a dead branch and calling it an apple tree. You know, it's kind of daft, isn't it? <laughs> it doesn't make it an apple tree. But a living tree does bear fruit because of what it is. And that's how we're to think about obedience. Obedience is the fruit of a true and lively faith in God. It's the evidence of what you have become under God's grace. And this was as much true in the Old Testament as the New Testament. So obedience matters. That's the first thing. And it comes from grace. The second thing is that we can learn from Moses is that provision has been made for sin under Moses. The whole sacrificial system points the way in which sin and failure can be brought to God and forgiven. That when you, you brought your offering to God and, and the blood of the animal was spilled, you could be assured that your sins are forgiven. Not because the animal's blood had some special power. Not because somehow the blood somehow changed God in some way. No, by by doing that, one, one could remember that God himself took upon himself 
the obligation unto death. And of course, you could only see that if you had true faith. See that God was bearing your burden for you. See, without faith, you could offer your sacrifices and think that you have placated God with an animal. But with true saving faith, you realize God has provided for you a substitute who will stand in your place. See, this is where the the covenant of Moses ultimately directs people, not to themselves and their worthy actions, but away from themselves to something else, to someone else. Because the Old Testament is full of pointers to Jesus Christ. That's why our confession of faith puts it so beautifully in uh, chapter 7, verse, uh, paragraph 5. Where it says, under the law, the covenant was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come. You see that? All of those prophecies, types, shadows, for signify the Christ to come. And with the eye of faith, Even in the Old Testament, you could see there's a Christ coming. There's a Christ coming. See, everywhere in the Bible leads us to Christ. Even the covenant with Moses. Have you seen him yet? Have you seen Jesus yet? Have you seen our wonderful Savior, about whom the whole Bible speaks? Have you seen him, the promised one? Have you seen him about whom all the prophecies are fulfilled? Have you seen him who's portrayed in those poor sacrificial animals? Jesus Christ. Or all the symbols of the Old Testament. Christ in the Ark of the Covenant. Christ in the golden lampstand. Christ in the bread of the presence. Christ in the priestly garments. And so on and so on and so on. Christ everywhere in the Old Testament. Have you seen him yet? See, the Mosaic Covenant actually is pointing forward to Christ. I hope you've found him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. I pray that for all of us we would plumb the riches, the depths of the riches of your word to discover more about him. And for any here who are unsure, uncertain, even decidedly in unbelief, oh Lord, change the heart that they may come to see that Jesus is the answer to all our needs. In his name we pray. Amen.